Right, if you uh, find 2 Chronicles and chapter 20. 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. And uh, we're going to have a look at uh, King Jehoshaphat tonight. Great, great jumping Jehoshaphat, as, as the song goes. Um, so we'll, we'll read the relevant story. 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. I shall commence from verse 1. <clears throat> After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, with some of the Munites, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Now, I'll tell you, when you've got the Moabites plus the Ammonites with the mixing of the Muonites in, you're in trouble. That is why this is such a relevant study. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Eden, Edom, sorry, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is, Engedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Now, the reason this is Judah um, is that at a certain point in Israel's history, in fact, just after the death of Solomon, Israel divided. There was civil war, and it divided into two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was called Israel, referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was referred to as Judah. And uh, Jehoshaphat is king of the southern kingdom, hence Judah. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt, so they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children, and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah. Whew. 
<laughs> Thank heavens it stopped there. It could have, in theory, gone all the way back to Adam, couldn't it? Dear, oh dear. Um, a Levite and descendant of Asaph. Oh, there you are. Get, get Asaph in. Um, as he stood in the assembly, he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa, and they set out, as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked towards the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, where they praised the Lord. This is why it is called the valley of Barakah to this day, because Barakah means praise. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lute and trumpets.
the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. Now, there's a tremendous picture here that shows us an awful lot about how we go about combating the attacks of Satan and the difficulties that we face in day-to-day -day life. And that's the picture we're going to dive into. But start off by saying of Jehoshaphat, he was one of the relatively few kings um, of the Jews in the Old Testament who was actually a believer. He was faithful to the Lord. And uh, when we get to this, you know, to that point of Israel's history in the Bible survey eventually, you'll, you'll be surprised at, at, at how bad the kings were. And, you know, and to have a faithful king was a, a bit of a rarity in Israel's history. But Jehoshaphat was one of the faithful kings. But we mustn't think in any way at all that he was some kind of super Christian or anything like that. Uh, in fact, if we just turn back into chapter 19, the prior chapter, I just want to read um, verse, verse 2 to 3. Now, what's happened here um, is that um, while Jehoshaphat was king in the southern kingdom, Judah, up in the north, northern kingdom, Israel, was a certain king called Ahab. Now, we've come across him before in the Elijah series, because Ahab was the king in Israel whom Elijah kind of battled against. And he was the king who married, you know, sort of like an occultic, um, you know, Gentile woman who was the high priestess, you know, priestess of a, a satanic cult. And, 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 I mean, he was into Baal worship. And he, he was one of the most dreadful kings that the northern kingdom had ever had. And what happened was Jehoshaphat, who was faithful to the Lord, a believer, had entered into an alliance with Ahab, which, which was absolutely forbidden to him, you know, because Ahab was, was so evil. And uh, in verses 2 to 3, we read this, Jehu the seer, that's another word for prophet, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him, that's Jehoshaphat, and said to the king, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of God is upon you. There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of the Asherah poles and have set your heart on seeking God. So you can certainly see that Jehoshaphat there is no super-Christian. I mean, he got into an alliance with Ahab and, you know, and here, sort of like, you know, the Lord speaks to him. You know, quite, quite sternly, he should not have done that, and yet he did. So the point is that here's a man that you and I can identify with. I mean, it's like the Lord looked down on him and said, now look, there are some things very wrong in you, and we're going to start with these alliances that you keep making. So it was, you know, a picture of, of sheer compromise. And yet, on the other hand, the Lord says, but there is some good in you because you've torn down the Asherah poles. So that's something we can identify with. I can, at any rate. I can certainly identify with the Lord looking down and saying, look, you know, this is not good. I certainly identify with that. But on the other hand, praise the Lord, I can identify with the fact that the Lord looks down on me and is pleased with things that he has accomplished in me. And that's the same for you. It's a mixture, isn't it? Good and bad. An awful long way to go as yet. So Jehoshaphat is someone who we can identify with. He's not a super-Christian. He's not someone who's made it, someone who's home-dry, who's so up there in the heavenlies that we can't identify with him. 
Here's a man very much like Elijah. He's flesh and blood, you know, of like passions as we are. He's someone we can identify with. And what is amazing that, in fact, after this story that we've read today, you know, I mean, the Lord really sort of like, you know, tells him off for that alliance with Ahab. A few years later, Ahab was replaced eventually by another king who, if possible, was even worse, Ahaziah. And Jehoshaphat goes and makes an alliance with him as well. You know, so, so there we have a man who is slow to learn what God is doing in him. I, I can identify with that too. So, you know, here we've got someone, not a, a super Christian, but we've got someone that we can very much identify with, or I can at any rate. Now then, let's, let's, let's go through this. Let's, let's, do, let's just read the first two verses to just set the scene here. After this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Muonites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told him, a vast army is coming against you from Eden, from the other side of the sea. It's already in Hazazon Tamar. So, what's basically happening here is that Israel is being invaded. Oh, sorry, the southern kingdom, Judah, is being invaded. And it's being invaded by a coalition of three nations, Moab, Ammon, and the men of Seir, the Muonites. All right? And so what's happened is a coalition of these three nations has come together with the express purpose of invading Judah. So, you know, I mean, this isn't just like a little skirmish. This isn't like you know, some band of marauders marching around who, you know, this is a major invasion force is now beginning to lay siege to the southern kingdom. And so the point is that here, I mean, Jehoshaphat is surrounded by some, you know, some, some pretty bad problems, some fairly major attacks of the enemy are looming large here. Jehoshaphat suddenly wakes up one morning and suddenly everything suddenly isn't great anymore. And, and he's, he's facing this major crisis. And, uh, you know, and of course it represents the problems and the difficulties and the attacks of Satan in whatever form it may be taking in your life, in my life, okay? Whatever they may be. So all of us face problems and difficulties. Satan is always on the attack. And remember, one of the major ways that Satan attacks is simply through temptation. And so here we've got Jehoshaphat facing difficulties, all right? A not easy situation. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 10 and find verse 13, because of course the point is that the situations you're facing are different to the situations that I'm facing. We're all different. All the situations we face are different. The armies, if you like, are different depending on the life circumstances that we find ourselves in. So, obviously, it's a little bit different for all of us. But in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, and uh, I find this encouraging. Let's, let's just read this. And this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, and verse 13. And he says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And then he goes on to say, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You know, and sometimes, you know, I find myself very much like this. You can look at the problems and the difficulties that you're struggling with individually, you know, like what, whatever the armies are that are invading you, as it were. And 
it's very easy to end up thinking that, that, that you're the only one with that problem, that you're the only one with that struggle, whatever it is, that you're the only one with that weakness, you're the only one falling in that particular area. Now, on the one hand, obviously, we're all different, so our problems vary, our difficulties vary. But at the end of the day, whatever your problem is, it is common to man. Must never think that somehow you're out there on your own, that you know you are the most sinful, that of course every other Christian is really together in this area of life where you're having problems. It's not true. Some Christians might be together in that area, but then maybe they're untogether in areas where you're fairly together. Can you see? You must never feel that you're absolutely on your own in it. All these things are common to man. All sin, all temptation is common to all of us. And uh, I mean, if Satan can you know, sort of get you to think that you're absolutely alone in whatever difficulties you face and get you feeling really isolated, it'll make it that much harder for you. You'll start condemning yourself, you know, and sort of thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm the only person who struggles in this particular way. You're not. All sin, all temptation is common to man. And yet the point is God is faithful and he won't let us face problems and difficulties that are too much for us. He'll only allow problems to come on us that match the grace and the work in our lives that we've already got. So the point is, although sometimes it all seems a bit overwhelming, the truth is nothing will ever happen to you that you haven't actually been equipped to deal with in advance by the Lord. And, uh, and there'll always be a way out. There will always be a way out. So there's Jehoshaphat facing these problems, the difficulties, the invading army. Now look what he does. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire, inquire of the Lord. I mean alarmed. He's alarmed. And, and that's very often how things can be for us. Uh, various situations. Now, oh goodness, you know, what am I going to do? And he says, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Now then, what Jehoshaphat does is exactly the right thing. He takes it to the Lord immediately in prayer. He did the very wisest thing. This was what sets Jehoshaphat apart as a man who was faithful to the Lord, that when suddenly difficulties, the circumstances changed, or whatever, he took it, he sought the Lord, he inquired of the Lord, he took it to the Lord. And that was the wisest thing he could have done. We've got to learn. We've got to learn from that. We're seeing here that Jehoshaphat was a man of prayer. That prayer wasn't alien to him. As soon as something happened that alarmed him, he was straight to the Lord in prayer. And he was calling other people to prayer as well, the whole nation, because this thing affected the whole nation. So he called the whole nation that was under his authority to prayer as well. And there are times when, you know, we've got to marshal all our resources. I mean, I'm in charge of all my resources, my mind, my strength, my emotions, you name it. There are times when we've got to be able to marshal all our resources to seek the Lord, you know, and, 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 and to get to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, you know, sort of show us here what to do. And notice that it was difficulty, it was this impending invasion that got him praying. And it's, it's worth noting that, that sometimes it is difficulties we need to make us do that. It is actually possible in the times when you're not being invaded, the times of rest and peace where things are going fairly even keel. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's good. Thank heavens 
that there are times when things go even kill. I mean, you know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Thank goodness that he leads us beside still waters as well as through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, I mean, thank heavens for that. There are the times of the still waters. But it is possible that, um, that, that when things are even keel, that we, we drift away from the Lord. You know, everything's okay and we feel we don't need him. And, you know, sometimes a good, you know, God can arrange a nice dose of difficulties or, or problems, you know, just to, you know, to, to really get us concentrating on the Lord. If you go to, to, to James, a verse that you're familiar with, especially as having done a series on James some time ago. James chapter 1, verse 2, and he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And so what James is saying, look, when difficulties come along, God's sending them to do a work in you, so you can rejoice in them. You know, they're, they're coming, as it were, as friends. I mean, the difficult, you know, I mean, here, the Ammonites and the Muonites, they definitely weren't Jehoshaphat's friends. Not personally, but on the other hand, they were his friends insofar as God was doing a work in him and Israel to bring them into a deeper relationship with him. And of course, the thing about perseverance is that we're not going to grow in the Lord without perseverance. There's just no way. Because, I mean, you know, you don't, you don't get sanctified, you don't get made holy overnight. It's a continuous, lifelong process. Therefore, perseverance is part and parcel of it. And the only way that we're going to develop perseverance or stickability is going through difficult times. Because if everything is hunky-dory and lovely and absolutely wonderful all the time, well, who needs stickability to stick in with that? I mean, only wild horses would drag you away from it, wouldn't it? It's when it's tough, it's when things are difficult that we develop that perseverance, that stickability, the endurance that, that the New Testament again and again says is, is, is so important. And so we're, we're seeing here that the difficulties are driving Jehoshaphat to prayer. And that's good. That is always good. Now, in, in, in verses 5 to 12, we, we actually have his prayer. And, uh, I, I mean, this is a good one. I mean, this is how to pray. This really is an object lesson in, in, in prayer. Let's, let's, let's go through this. I mean, first of all, in verse 6, he says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Now, that is the basis of all prayer. Jehoshaphat knew that he was coming to prayer to his God, who was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What is the problem he's facing? The problem is he's facing an invasion by a coalition of three nations. What does he say in, in, in this prayer? He says, Lord, you rule over all the nations. There's three coming against me. Lord, it's nothing. You reign over the whole flipping lot. I mean, how many nations were there in the world at this time? Thousands, I guess, hundreds, I don't know. But the point is, Jehoshaphat was facing three. That's all. And I guess there were two ways of viewing it, weren't you? You know, sort of weren't there. You, you know, he could have done, oh, goodness, three nations are invading me. Oh, we're dead, we're finished. Or he could have said, well, my God is the God of all the nations in the world. And here, a piffling little three are going to take him on. You see, it's the difference, isn't it? 
I mean, you know, does David look at Goliath or does David look at the Lord his God? See? Your outlook is going to depend who you're looking at. And Jehoshaphat was looking to the Lord. And he was looking to the power and the mightiness of God. You know, no one can withstand you. That's what Jehoshaphat said. He, he knew he was praying to, to the God who is sovereign over all things. The God whose will at the end of the day cannot be thwarted. He says here, no one can withstand you. So he's praying in the realization of the power and the mightiness of God. I mean, one of the technical words for God is that God is omnipotent, omni, all potent power, all powerful. There is absolutely nothing that God cannot do. Nothing is impossible to the Lord. He is absolutely bigger than absolutely everything that you could absolutely face, you see. And for us, often, how small our God is. Yeah. I mean, we relate, often, we deal with circumstances as if, you know, kind of like Goliath was actually bigger than God, as it were. Jehoshaphat could have related to this situation thinking that a combination of three nations were bigger than God. But he knew that wasn't the case. He knew that God was absolutely Lord and in total control of the situation that he's facing. And yet how small we often make God. And if you think about it, isn't that a blasphemy? Isn't that a blasphemy? I mean, what is blasphemy? The word means to speak injuriously of. To blaspheme is to talk of someone in a way that misrepresents them in a bad way. But the word blasphemy tends to get used of God. And so to blaspheme God, it's to speak of him in a way that misrepresents him in a bad way. So, for instance, if someone tried to make out that God was sinful, that is blasphemy, because God isn't. He's holy. He's perfect. Now, in the same way, often, we actually make out as if God is weak, helpless. And that's a blasphemy. He's not. He is absolutely and totally in control. And that is why we pray. That is why we pray. If we believe that, my God, what a difference it would make to our praying. So, here in verse 6, Jehoshaphat, he's, he's not coming to some weak, feeble God. He's coming to his God who is sovereign over all things, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he proclaims that as Lord. He says, Lord, you are great. You are marvelous. You are absolutely mighty. And then in verse 7, he says, Oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Now, he takes it one step further. Because the thing is, now he starts to look back on what God has already done. In the thing about God being all-powerful, all right, we can like, you know, come to God in prayer, and we can be quite clear and believe that God is all-powerful. But where Satan undermines us, he lets us believe that. But if he can then get us thinking, oh, but of course God's not actually going to do anything, Oh, I believe that God is all-powerful, yes, but I don't believe he'll actually do anything in my situation. Well, I mean, you know, he's one, isn't he? So the point is, Jehoshaphat here, he's not just aware that God is all-powerful, he looks back 
on what God has done that relates to him. And he, it's, it, he's the king of the Jews. The Jews are under threat. So here he looks back on the deliverance, the way that God got Israel into the promised land and drove out the Canaanites before them. So here, Jehoshaphat, he's looking back and he's relating to what God has already done. And we must do that at times. It's so easy to think, okay, God is all-powerful, but he's not going to do anything. Look back on what he has done. We often need to do that. If you read through the Psalms, you'll find that one common theme in some of them, particularly with King David, is that if he was all like depressed and down and defeated and blah and beaten, that you know he'd be pouring out his moans to the Lord, which is fair enough. The Lord wants us to you know pour out all our moans and groans on him. But in the process, he'd start to look back on what God had done for him in the past. And once he started to look back on what God had done for him in the past, it, it, it kind of raised him up. It lifted his spirits. It gave him a bit of faith to believe that the Lord was going to act for him now and in the future. And so, you know, a psalm that starts off all depressed, then he looks back over what God has done in the past, then he concludes, well, I mean, he's, he's the same, you know, in Hebrews it says that he's the same yesterday, today and forever. So God moved in the past, but he's going to move for me now, isn't it? And faith lifts. And that's what Jehoshaphat is doing. He's expecting God to move here and now in the immediate situation that he's facing. And then in verse 8 and 9, he goes on this thing about that they've lived in the land and built in it a sanctuary, saying if calamity comes upon us, blah, blah, blah. And what he's doing here is he's harking back to the, 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 the prayer of Solomon when the temple was built and dedicated some, you know, a few hundred years earlier. And the situation you had there is that it had been outlined that, uh, you know, that that if, if, if various disasters came upon Israel, that if they were to turn to the Lord and, and, and really be faithful to him and really cry out for help, put right anything they'd done wrong that brought it on, that if they were to cry out to the Lord, that he would deliver them from whatever it was, whether it was drought, whether it was famine, or whether it was invading armies. There was that promise there in Scripture that if they cried out to the Lord when being invaded, that he would deliver them. And so now, that's what Jehoshaphat moves on to. He's claiming the promise of God. And this is all what prayer is. It is coming to our God, who not only can do anything, but has promised so much that he will do. And prayer is the means, so often, of enabling him to do it. And Jehoshaphat is coming here, says, Lord, right, we're being invaded. Now, you have promised that if, blah, 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 then we, blah, 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 and the result will be blah, 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 blah. So he says, Lord, we are being invaded. We are turning to you in prayer. Therefore, you're going to deliver us. You see, he's claiming the promises of God, expecting God to fulfill them. And it's been said that, that, that there's that however great it is when God lays hold of a man, that there's something greater, and it's when a man lays hold of God. And one's got to be careful in this, but there's a sense in which true prayer and intercession is kind of, it's, it's, it's climbing up on the Lord and holding him by the lapels, looking right in the eye, saying, do it, Lord. <laughs> not, not, not in this rather 
irreverent way that some of the faith teachers paint the idea that you decide what you want and then you know if you you know virtually believe you bully god who's got to do it because you believe we're not talking about that we're talking about doing it in response to god's invitation for us to do it but can you see how definite faith is it won't take no for an answer and here he's got a definite promise in the word of god that if they're being invaded if they cry out to the Lord, he'll deliver them. So that's what he's doing. You know, it almost seems sort of like, you know, sh shaking the Lord. You know, do it, Lord, do it, Lord. That is genuine faith. It's not presumption as long as you're responding clearly to God's revealed will. It's only presumption when we start to decide what we think God ought to do and then start claiming it left, right and centre. That, that, that obviously is a bit crazy. But can you see here, Jehoshaphat is really laying hold of God. And that is what prayer is. There is a real determination here. This isn't a kind of, oh well Lord, no, I pray this, and oh well Lord, no, I pray this, oh Lord, bless that. Is it? I mean, there's, a, there's an involvement here. There's a real a giving, I mean, he's involved with this. He's, he's emo his whole life is involved with it. Now obviously, by and large, a disciplined prayer life is going to be irrespective of emotions. Of course it is. But can you see that there are times when real intercession, it really does, you know, you're kind of, you're really into it. Because it's so important. And, and you know, a real determination here. And then in verses 10 and 11, he says, But now, here are the men from Amod, Moab and Mount Seir, blah, blah, whose territory, see, they're, they're coming to drive us out. And, 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 and he, he names the problems quite specifically here. I mean, not because God didn't know. I mean, God knew that, that who, who was invading them. But Jehoshaphat is quite specific. He says, Lord, and this is the problem. The problem is Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. They're invading us. And that's tremendously important. We need, in our prayers, in our relationship with the Lord, to be specific. A question, are we specifically praying about the specific problems and difficulties that we're specifically facing now? You see how important that is? That actually there's an ongoing day-to-day, -day, actually what you get, it's, it's kind of, it's possible to end up with a prayer life that, that, that is so mechanical that you can actually end up sort of like, you know, praying last year's problems still, you see. Last year you were praying about this, you've got such a habit, that's answered, long gone. Yet you're still praying about it. You see, it's important to stay topical with the Lord. You see, whatever problem I had last week might not be the problem I need to be praying about this week. And yet it is possible in prayer to, um, you know, and, and the machine is grinding on. Now, let me say, that is far better than being prayerless. Oh yes. Far better to have fallen into the trap of being so disciplined in prayer that you've got mechanical. That's far better to be in that trap than the trap of prayerlessness. But nevertheless, as we are all developing disciplined prayer lives, because in this fellowship the Lord has exercised us on this, hasn't he? Possibly the danger is mechanicalness. I mean, you know, would you believe it? Every now and then, all right, every now and then, I, I end up, I, I'm praying for John Honeywell, <laughs> who's, who's been with, <laughs> you see, because I, I prayed for him every day because he was part of this church. He's been with the Lord for months. 
Maybe now that I, and I suddenly realised, oh, he's with you, Lord, isn't he? Okay. Can you see that? Mind you, this is I'm talking about, you know, sort of like first thing in the morning here, you know, and sort of like, you know, it depends how many how many cups of coffee I've had, you know, before I get to that part of my memory list. If you see what I mean, but but can you see the point? He he's he's specifying the problems he's facing at that time, and it is important for us to do that to be specific, to be topical with the Lord. Uh, I mean, it's, it's got to be definite. Prayer can end up so general and so wishy-washy that, that, that the only response of the Lord is always saying, well, could you be more specific? I don't know what you're asking me. I will answer, but what, what is it you're asking for? And, and, and it, it is possible if you think, you know, right, okay, look back. What prayers can I see have been answered? And so you look back, you think, oh, I can't see any answered prayer. Huh, not fair, all right, so sulk, sulk, sulk. The answer might be that you haven't prayed anything specific enough to warrant a specific answer. Prayer needs to be specific. That's important. And then in verse 12, and this is key, this is so important. This really shows us that his grabbing onto the Lord's lapels isn't presumption. Because here he says, O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So this tells us as well that such bold praying from Jehoshaphat isn't a kind of presumptuous cockiness like you know i mean sort of some, some i mean some of the faith teaching today is nothing short of presumptuous cockiness jehoshaphat is praying in that way because he knows by the grace of the lord that's what the lord wants him to be doing he's doing so in the absolute knowledge of his own complete helplessness and not knowing what to do so there's no presumption here Jehoshaphat is fully aware of what he is before the Lord. Absolutely nothing. A wretched sinner saved by grace. He knows. And the reason he's turning to the Lord is precisely because he knows there is nothing he can do about this situation himself in his own strength. And then in verse 13, immediately after he's done this prayer, and this would have been public, but what happens now? All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. So what they do now is they just stand there. They literally just stand there and wait on the Lord in silence. Now then, what do we do? Well, we pray about something and then no sooner have we finished praying and whoosh, we're off to sort it out, aren't we? Well, I've prayed about it. Right, so Lord, you bless me as I go and sort it out. They don't do that here. You see, there's just waiting. They, they didn't rush off to do their own thing. Jehoshaphat waited because he knew that having cried out to the Lord, the Lord would start to direct him as to what to do. And so he doesn't do anything until he's got those directions. That's quite sensible, isn't it? Yeah, can you imagine if you're driving somewhere and you've got a bit lost, you need directions. So you think, right, I'll stop and ask directions. So you know, sort of like uh, if someone over there should pull the car over you, wind your window down. And you say, oh, excuse me, can you tell me where so-and-so is? You know, such and such places. So this person, I say, oh, yes, and they take a deep breath. And before they start telling you, whoosh, you've driven off. 
That's so often what they're like with the law. We sort of like pull the car over, wind the window, excuse me, Lord, can you tell me what to... And he takes a deep breath and, and whoosh, we're off. We're gone before he can tell us. That waiting on the Lord is, is kind of important, rather than rushing off to do our own thing all the time. And that is, 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 is what Jehoshaphat knows here, he, just to wait on the Lord. And then, of course, what happens is that God speaks to them. There's a prophet there, Jehaziel. Now, his name actually means God speaks, God reveals. That is what his name, Jehaziel, means. So, obviously, there were prophets there, and the Lord speaks through this one. And the Lord gives them the instructions. Jehoshaphat said, Lord, you know, I can't do anything about it. You do it. And now, Jehoshaphat, having waited on him, the Lord starts to give him instructions as to what to do. And of course, it's important for us to know that, that the Lord will speak to us. He will show us. Um, if, if we're, we're bringing our situations to the Lord, all the problems, all the difficulties we've got, all the things, oh, I don't know what to do about this, I don't know what to do about that. If we're bringing them to him in prayer, then he will, in his time, in his way, show us what to do. It might not be as clear-cut as a prophet Jehaziel pronouncing to you God's word. But the point is, in whatever way he chooses to do it, he will show you the way. And, and I've got no doubt that you could look, I mean, you might feel, oh, well, I'm, I'm not very good at getting God's will. I'm not very good at God revealing his will to me. And Well, I mean, I guess we all feel like that. But on the other hand, you look back over your past life, all the years that you've been with the Lord, and look at the number of times where the Lord did get you out of those situations. He steered you out perfectly. You did eventually find the way even though you didn't even know at the time that that was the way God was showing you. You see what I mean? Sometimes you have to, you know, you might think, I do not at this moment know what God's will is about something. Now, it could be that tomorrow you'll know quite specifically. There are times it works like that. But there are other times when you never feel, oh, I know what God's will is in regards to this. But then later on you look back, and it didn't matter that you didn't know the way to go. The Lord steered you in the right way anyway. And this is just part of trusting him. The Lord will lead you. Whether you actually have a map in front of you and a kind of can see the route clearly, sometimes God does, he reveals the route in advance, but very often you're literally just being led one step at a time. Of course, there's that thing in, um, in the Psalms when David says that, that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my pathway. And of course, the point is, you know, it's a picture there of someone walking along at night with a lamp, you know, on the end of a stick. And the point is that, that God's word, that, that lamp shows you the next step. But what's in front of you is still in darkness. It's literally one step at a time. You often won't see the whole picture, but just one step at a time. And if God is steering you, then it doesn't matter that you don't know where it is that you're actually going. And so the point is, the circumstances you're in, the problems, the difficulties, all the question marks, whatever your Ammonites and Muonites are, what, what, whatever it is in your life that this kind of pictures, then the point is, God will show you the way. Believe that. Trust him. He will. It's an absolute certainty.
Now then, what did Jehaziel actually say to them? And uh, well, verse verse fifteen is the key verse. Let's let's just let's just read this. He says, "Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you: Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's." Now that's 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 the key to, to all guidance, and that that is the key to peace in all circumstances. It's knowing at the end of the day it's God's battle and not our battle. It's God's problem and not our problem. Think of it like this. If you're God's child, which you are, then you're his problem, aren't you? I mean, Dave's kids are his problem. Gary's kids are his problem, as they both know full well. God is our father. We are his problem. So the point is, you are his problem. Now, if you are his problem, then that means that all your problems are also his problem. So it's not just that you're his problem, but all the problems you've got now are his problem as well, along with you, because you're his problem, okay? But if, and it's true because God is almighty, that God doesn't have any problems, and he doesn't, then it's no problem, is it? <laughs> now, can you see the point? God doesn't have any problems. I'm his problem, and all my problems are his problems, but he doesn't have any problems. So it's no problem, is it? And that's our problem. We see all the problems and the difficulties without realising that the battle is the Lord's. And to realise that the battle is the Lord's and that all these things are his problems and that they aren't problems at all, because God only has plans. He doesn't have problems. He has a plan. So everything that you call a problem is just part of God's plan, you know, in your life for you to grow. See? When you realise that, you know, sort of suddenly God is so much bigger and the difficulties are so much smaller and life is so much more pleasant. And in verse 17, all right, the instructions get a bit, bit more specific here. He reiterates, you will not have to fight this battle. And what we're getting here, our instructions here for our day-to-day -day Christian life, you'll, you'll see what I mean in a minute. He says, take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Now, that's basically your instructions and my instructions for living the Christian life, day by day. Now, there are three bits to it, and just go through. First of all, he says, take up your positions. Now, here's an invading army, that's what they were facing. But that invading army represents to you and I whatever our difficulties, whatever tomorrow holds, all right? Or whatever today holds, because Jesus said today has its, you know, enough problems of its own, as it were. So, what God says to us in regards to it is, take your positions. Now then, what is your position relative to the problems of life? If you go to Romans 6 verse 6, we will see what our position is. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. Take your position. For we know 
that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin so what's the position you're to take? well that you're dead to sin go to Galatians chapter 6 Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 Paul says may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world take your positions what's your position? you've been crucified with Christ for that reason go back to Romans 6 and now we read verse 11 to 13 Paul says in the same way count yourselves or reckon yourselves count one two three ready reckoner reckon count on it as surely as ABC one two three count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness for sin shall not be your master for you're not under law but you're under grace that is the position that we take that we died with Jesus on the cross and at the end of the day these difficulties these circumstances that we're facing it's all tied down to the fact that in it all Satan is tempting us to sin all the time there's temptation going through circumstances that make us doubt that make us want to respond in the way that we would have done before we were Christians and it's all to do with the world the problems of the world worldliness the way the world thinks rather than the way that God thinks and so here in this battle that we face as Satan comes at us with his temptation with all the rubbish that he gets us to think in our minds then the position that we take against that onslaught from Satan is that we're crucified with Christ that is the position that we take when Jesus died on the cross to sin you died there with him that is what the Bible says it doesn't matter if you don't understand it it doesn't matter if you know that, that, that you can't comprehend it the Bible says it's true and says count on it expect it to be the case that more and more you experience holiness and less and less experience sin expect that to be the case you are dead to sin you were crucified with Christ on the cross that is the position you take and then the second thing that Jehoshaphat is told to do through this prophet is stand firm stand firm that's all take your position and then stand firm not to take your position and then run up and down the battlefield like a headless chicken Sta take your position and stand firm go to John 15 John chapter 15 and if you find verse 4 
Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jehaziel says to Jehoshaphat, stand firm. And here Jesus is saying, remain in me. Remain, abide, dwell. I stay there. You're there, so stay there. And of course the point here that Jesus is talking about producing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the life of holiness, sanctification, whatever word you want to put on it. And of course the thing about the branches and the vine, that Jesus is the branches and we're the vine. And here's the point. What, what is the, I mean, if, if we went to a vineyard, alright, and I said, right, point to, point to the vine, or I say, right, Dave, I want Dave to point to the vine, and I want Gary to point to the branch. The branches are the vine. Can you see? The branches are the vine. And when Jesus says to us that he's the vine and we're the branches, can you see that what he's talking about is our absolute oneness with him? We have been made one spirit with the Lord, as Paul says. We are one with Jesus. And because we've been made one with Jesus, that also means we are one in his death and in his resurrection that Jesus died to sin, and we're one with him in that, we died there too. That's what baptism is about. In baptism, we're buried with him. And yet, as you come out of the water, Jesus rose again from the dead. We're raised to a newness of life, to live the new life that God has called us to. And so, stand firm. Because that's, that's the truth. That's the truth. How I remember so, so I, I remember so well the moment that Jesus revealed himself to me and I became a Christian. I remember so well about three hours later when I was baptized with the Spirit. But I remember so well years later when I saw my oneness with Jesus. That night when I realized that I was dead. You know, that I was it was all I was so, you know, I was so so kind of like taken up with sin and failure and, 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 and everything. You know, it was, Lord, I, I wanted to die. And I realized I was dead already. This the Lord said to me, you are dead. Changed everything. I was wanting to die, <laughs> as it were. The Lord said, you are dead. And when I realized that the answer to so many things where, where I only knew defeat was that I was dead to them, that was the answer. They just had no more power. Oh, it didn't mean sinlessness from that point. I thought perhaps it would, but it didn't. But I mean, but never, so many things changed, a profound change. And it was realizing my oneness with Jesus in his death, that I was dead to these things. I'd been enabled to take my position and I'd been enabled to stand firm. That was the truth I saw, simply abiding in Jesus so that he produced the fruit. And then the third thing, he says, take your positions, stand firm, and then as a result, see the deliverance the Lord will give you. And if you go to Colossians chapter 1, because the deliverance will come from the Lord. It's something that he does, not something that we do. 
And in Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 27, we see the secret of all this, the mystery of it. He says, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What is the mystery of the Christian life? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because if you're one with Jesus, if you're in him, he's in you. If you live in him, he lives in you. And the point is that in taking our position, realising this death that we died with him, then it means that he is going to live through us. And that is why in Galatians also, Paul talks about no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. That, that almost not just a changed life, but an exchanged life. In the sense that when we became Christians, the key to that was that on the cross, Jesus took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. It was a swap. It was a swap. But that's our position before God. He sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. That's why we're saved and always will be saved. Nothing can change that. We're declared righteous before God. But we have the righteousness of Jesus and he wants that to be lived out in us. So it's not just that we've got, as it were, the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us positionally, but so that his life is actually coming out in us, that we're changing, that we're changing, that more and more of the new life is coming through and less and less of the old. Or as Paul puts it, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. Why has the old passed away? Because you were one with Jesus in his death, and Jesus died once and for all to sin, and he rose again unto God with a new life, a resurrection life. That's the position that we're in. And that is why God brings us to nothing. That is why God brings us to the end of ourselves. That is why, I mean, when I eventually got that revelation is the only word I can put on it that night when I realized that I was dead that I was one with Jesus in his death that came after years of, of, of you know sort of like coming to the end of myself is hardly the phrase I would put on it but but that is exactly what had happened in, in, in a very big way for a very very long period of time and that is why God brings us to the end of ourselves to show us that it's the life of Jesus within us. It's what he's going to do. The battle is his. At the end of the day, if I'm facing the battle with sin, yeah, at the end of the day, the sword has to be in my hand. But the battle is the Lord's. It is the Lord doing it through us. Paul said, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. The energy, the power, the potential, that all comes from the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. And then in verse 18, it says that Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. And that what this did in them, what this realization did in them, it just, I mean, they just fell to the ground in their nothingness before God. I mean, this was worship and aspects of worship. I mean, worship has various aspects singing, the praising, the praying, sharing, all these things. But there's an aspect of worship as well when it's just, as it were, 
on the ground before God in silence, realizing our absolute nothingness before the Lord. That we're dust. That we are dust. And He is God. And it's when we're there at the foot of the cross, realizing our nothingness before Him, realizing that we're dust, that is when the Lord can really move through us. That is when the potential, the energy, the power of his life comes through more and more with less and less of us in the way. And then in verse 20, Jehoshaphat, this is the next day when they've got to actually go out there and face that problem. Jehoshaphat stands up and he says, Listen to me, Judah and people of Israel. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. And guess what it boils down to? Faith. Trusting the Lord to do it. They are facing this battle against invading armies. And the Lord has shown them, I'm going to take care of it. Go out there and face those armies. I'm going to take care of it. And so now Jehoshaphat says to the people, right, we've heard what God said. We're going to believe it and have faith. We can choose whether we believe the Lord or whether we doubt him. And here Jehoshaphat says, look, you can have faith. If you do, you trust him, if you look to him, you'll be upheld. But if you don't, you'll be flat on your face. And he says, have faith in his prophets and you'll be successful. His prophets here referring to what Jehaziel had said, you know, trust what the Lord has said through this prophet. And if you do, then everything he said is going to come to pass. Now, for us, I mean, we're not trusting in the words of prophets coming to us, are we? We have the word of God. That the sum total of everything that all the prophets throughout history have said is here. We've got the whole lot. All they had was Jehaziel. We've got the whole flipping lot. We have the word of God. And if we have faith in the word of God, then we shall be successful. I don't mean successful in the sense that you're, you know, that you're going to become the managing director of your firm or you're going to become the, the greatest evangelist who's ever lived. I mean, we're not talking, but relative to the sense of finding victory in the battle. That's what's meant here by successful. I mean, you know, faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I trust him. Peter, when he stepped out of the boat, when Jesus said, come to me, when Peter stepped out of the boat onto the sea, that was faith. And here they were about to go out and face these invading armies. And at the end of the day, that step has got to be taken. That step of reckoning ourselves to be dead to sin, where you start walking out there to face the enemy. You know, the problems, whatever they are, full in the face, eyeball job, head on. There's no avoiding it. We can't pretend that whatever we're facing doesn't exist. Whatever the hurdles are in our life that we face, whatever tomorrow is going to bring in our discipleship, we can't run away from it. We can't stick our head in the sand and pretend it's not there. It's there. Whatever it is, it's going to be different for all of us. The difficulties I'm going to face tomorrow will be different from the difficulties you're going to face tomorrow, or whatever, but they're going to be there. The temptations that I'm going to face tomorrow might be different from the temptations you're going to face tomorrow, but they're going to be there. We can't run away from them, we can't ignore them, we can't pretend they're not there. We've got to step out and face those invading armies, face that onslaught of Satan, but facing it in the faith 
the trust of the Lord that if we take our position, if we stand firm, then we will see the Lord fight for us and we will see the Lord deliver us. That is what Jehoshaphat here did. And this is what he is encouraging the people to do. And we've got to encourage ourselves and we've got to encourage each other. And then it goes on, verse 21, says, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. As they went out at the head of the army, saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. Now then, what happens now is that as the army goes out, Jehoshaphat makes sure that there are priests and singers and musicians who go out at the head of the army. So as they march out to meet the enemy, what goes out first is praise and worship. And by the time they actually get to the battlefield, something amazing has happened. And what's happened is that the Ammonites and the Moabites and the men of Seir, the Muonites, had a coalition together against Israel. What now happens is that the three armies forget all about that coalition against Israel. And Moab and Ammon form a coalition overnight against the Muonites and wipe them out. So the Ammonites and the Moabites now turn on the Muonites and they wipe them out. Having done that, they then turn on each other and wipe each other out. And by the time Israel gets there, there's no one from these three armies left alive. The army, sorry, the enemy has been turned on itself. Uh, and you find God always does that. He turns the tables on Satan. And yet here, as Jehoshaphat and the army has gone out to face this battle, they've gone out, but praise is at the head of the army. And that's tremendously important. Praise. Praise is absolutely paramount here in this story because praise is absolutely paramount in our Christian life. And I don't just mean when we come together on the Sundays for our praise and worship, not just on the Tuesdays, you know, before the Bible teaching, we have a time of praise. I'm not just talking about that, but as a general outlook, a general day-to-day -day outlook. Um, somebody, I, I can't remember who it was, but someone had um, a thing on their desk and it just said, try praise. And they, they, they just kept that there on their desk, try, try praise. I mean, not, not as a magic charm. You know, I mean, you get some schools of thought almost if you start praising God, then God is going to act. And it all, all, almost becomes rather like, like a charm. And you start praising God because if you do, you're increasing your chances of him giving you what you want. I'm not talking about that. You know, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's crazy. It's virtually occult, but I mean, it's certainly wrong. You know, any idea that you can manipulate God by praising him. It's not a question of that. But it is a question that one, God is worthy of praise. And, and as, as in the sort of like, you know, the Westminster Prayer Book, which is very, very good, it is meet right and our bounden duty that we in all times and in, in, at all times in all places give, give thanks to God. I mean, that, that is absolutely, God is worthy of our worship at all times, our worship and our praise. 
It is right and proper that we are forever praising God. Of course it is. But also because praise is the natural expression of true faith. Because if we are trusting the Lord, if we have faith in the Lord, well then, to have your eyes on the Lord in that way, because faith is having your eyes on the Lord, that is going to issue in the life of praise. Whereas unbelief, eyes off the Lord, is going to be me, 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 poor old, usually. See, that, that sort of thing. Praise is a natural outcome of genuine faith. And that is why praise went out ahead of the army. Spiritual warfare is not going to be one where there isn't praise. Because the lack of praise simply shows a lack of faith. You can't have faith and not praise. You can't be not praising and have faith. Any more than you can say you've got faith without doing good works. It's not, you know, it's, it's the sign of it being there. And so therefore praise is vitally important because it is the outcrop, the outcome of genuine faith. And so with spiritual warfare, we need to know that Satan hates praise. And, 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 and largely, it's when there was praise that the enemy was turned on itself here, and they destroyed each other. And when we pray, certainly we can know it when we pray, our praying is vital in spiritual warfare, but so is praise vital in spiritual warfare. Satan hates praise. I mean, you can... Um, you know, sort of get, you know, if you've got radio signals being transmitted, things, you can get jammers, can't you? So that you can jam certain signals. Um, you know, sort of like, um, I think the Americans, a stealth bomber, they've in effect got a bomber that, 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 that jams the, uh, you know, sort of like the radar signals, you know, all, all the interference mucks it up. Now, an attitude of praise in our hearts jams all Satan's signals in what he's doing in my life. You see what I mean? If you move into a situation, there's praise, it's jamming Satan's signals. It's, it's totally cocking up everything Satan's trying to do, because that is what spiritual warfare is. It's bringing to bear the power of God in situations which binds and overrules the power of Satan in those situations. And this is why praise is so important. Why is it that praise has that effect? Why is it that praise, why is it that Satan hates it so much? Well, because Satan hates God. Satan hates the fact that God is God and he isn't God. And Satan truly hates the fact when he's in the presence of people who are worshipping God as God and not worshipping him as God. He hates it. He can't do anything with it. You know, like wash their hair, they can't do a thing with it. You start praising, Satan can't do a thing with you. You see what I mean? It just puts out all, if you like, the right vibes, the power of the Holy Spirit, and mucks up all the powers of evil spirits and what Satan is doing. And so, this is why, praise. I mean, you know, those problems that are overcoming us, or whatever, well, what's part of the answer? Well, the answer is trusting the Lord. Everything we've seen here is trusting the Lord, isn't it? Take your position, reckon yourself to be dead to sin, alive to God, blah, blah, blah. All that, it's all faith. God has said it, we're going to believe it. 
How can we actuate it? Well, praise. Praise. Do you remember when David um, had to flee? You know, I mean, he was Saul's replacement. Saul was unfaithful. God says, right, I, I regret that I've made Saul king. I'm going to replace him with a man after my own heart, David. And then what happened is for years, David was an exile. Far from, far from the vision he'd been given being fulfilled there and then, the exact opposite happened. And he's driven out of the very nation that he's uh, the king of. Very often it works like that. God gives you a promise, and the next thing you know, the exact opposite is happening. That's to prepare you so that you're ready to receive the promise at God's time. So David had to be prepared in order to become king. So he becomes an exile. God, is, you know, he's driven out. Saul's trying to kill him, blah, blah, blah. And you'll remember at one point that he, 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 he gathers around him everyone who's discontent, everyone who's got debts, all the misfits. I mean, David is an exile, and he gathers all these people together. They're faithful to him, you know, they're loyal to him, but they're all the misfits. Remember, they gather together and they make the cave of Adullam their, um, you know, their kind of HQ. And you can almost imagine in this cave of Adullam, you know, sort of like, you know, I think there were three or five hundred of us, you know, four hundred I think it was. And, you know, sort of like all sitting around in this cave and four hundred tales of woe being exchanged, you know. And then the prophet, I think it was Gad, came along and said to David, look, come out of the stronghold, you know, because I mean all that, you know, tales of woe are strongholds. When we soon as we're into poor old me, Satan stuck a stronghold on you, all right? And the prophet came and he says, leave the stronghold, stronghold, and he says, go into the land of Judah. Now, Judah means praise. And once David did that, this motley crew, all sitting around, moping and bemoaning, became an army that God used to protect Israel from marauding bandits and other armies. It knocked them into shape. They became a force for the Lord against the enemy. And that's the effect that praise has. They're, you know, sort of like, you know, the difficulties, all the things at the moment, they're defeating you, all right? They're, they're there. You keep tripping over them. No sign of victory. Well, I'll tell you what, if we go, oh dear, poor, no victory yet, that's in the cave of Adon. Get out of there. Get into Judah, the land of praise. And turn your eyes away from where you're being defeated onto the Lord and give him praise and worship. Get your mind off of yourself and onto the Lord. And then you're clearing the lines for the Lord to bring victory for you in that area that at the moment is defeating you. And in his time and in his way, God will do just that. And then in verse 30, just ending off here, it says, And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. After this invasion, he wasn't invaded again. He had peace on every side. He had rest on every side. And at the end of the day, the Christian life, it's coming into rest in more and more areas of our lives. More and more areas of our lives where the battle in that area of life is over and we're at rest. Like that nation over there, well, no, they've invaded and been defeated. They're gone. See, no more trouble here from the Ammonites. They were defeated. They're gone. No more trouble here from the Moabites. They're defeated. They're gone. No more trouble from the Muonites. They're defeated. They're gone. Oh, Jehoshaphat had other fights later on. But at the, you see? And more and more areas of our life, this area of my life, I was always being invaded from that area of my life, absolute defeat. Well, that battle's over now, I've got rest there. 
Praise the Lord. And can you see, it's that rest coming into more and more areas of our lives. Now, obviously, having said that, praise God for the rest in the areas of life you got it. Obviously, there's all the other areas of life, like the old Holy Spirit. He comes into us, we're like the house, loads and loads of rooms, and he goes from house, you know, from room to room, cleaning up. And there's lots of rooms to go. But at the end of the day, it's coming into rest on every side. And of course, this sanctification, holiness, it's progressive. You know, it, it's sort of like at the moment, the Lord might be bringing Yamanites against you. Next week, it might be the Muonites. You know, for you, the Amorites might have been years ago. They're gone, they're knocked on the head. But can you see, all these invading armies, they all represent a sin problem in our life, an area where God wants to deal with. And bit by bit, systematically, he's dealing with it. But remember, the key to it is take your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance of the Lord. Because at the end of the day, the deliverance is always from the Lord. You and I have to struggle, strive, do everything we can to live in obedience to the Word of God. Where we sin, where we fail, we bring that to the Lord in confession and repentance. But I can look back and, and see so many things where there was defeat, struggle, 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 defeat, absolute hopelessness, all right? No chance here. And yet I can look back and those things that so had me defeated, now they're gone, they're things of the past. There's rest there, there's peace there, there's victory there. And yet as I look back, oh, I can see all the struggling I did, all the, you know, all, all the, 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 the kind of the striving that I went through. But as I look back, that victory was nothing to do with my striving. When the victory came, it was purely of the Lord. He did it. It wasn't me at all. And that is why it's so natural. And at the end of the day, when victory over sin does come, it's natural. It's the most natural thing in the world. And the point is, God goes from area to area. So here's an area of your life. The most natural thing in the world in that area is to sin. When God has finished with you in that area, the most natural thing in the world in that area now will be not to sin. Because the new nature has taken over from the old. And so we've got to look to the Lord. We've got to trust him, believe him, have faith for this. This is what he is doing inside of, in, inside of us. It will go on until the day we die. But like Jehoshaphat, all the battles that we face, let's go out there, face them, send the army out, but with praise, the singers out there, absolutely trusting the word of the Lord. He is going to do it. Let's not despair. Let's not lose hope. Yes, we can look at all the things in us that are still so very wrong, all the areas we're still so undealt with. But let's rejoice in what God has done and trust him because he's even now, all the difficulties you're going through at the moment are because of the other areas in your life that he's working on at the moment. And in time, you'll look back and you'll realize that where you've got struggles now, you'll look back and you'll be in rest in that area of your life. And that particular invading army will be dealt with and will be gone. You'll be busy fighting another one then, but at least that one will be gone. Right, I'll finish that.